Welcome to the Scale Ups Podcast, where each week you get to hear Sean Steele, professional CEO, growth mentor, and advisory board chair, unpack the strategies that successful founders have used to achieve scale in their businesses. Stay tuned as he interviews the entrepreneurs who've made it, learns from industry experts, and follows a group of founders still striving to scale. G'day everyone and welcome to this week's episode with Robbie Sharon Zipsa, the second time round uh, for Robbie on the uh, podcast. I have to start with a little introduction today because I actually have to start with an apology. I have had a technical glitch in the recording of this uh, episode. I've had the wrong mic setting uh, on my microphone so it, my voice is not going to sound as um, as rich and deluxe and chocolatey as it normally does uh, because actually I wasn't using my podcasting microphone apparently. Uh, it was recording through a different one. So apologies for that. My voice doesn't sound great. But this is an episode you absolutely need to listen to. Robbie's voice sounds fantastic. And this is the first episode where we spend an entire episode just unpacking financing options. So all sorts of debt options, all sorts of equity options um, that Robbie's used in the building of the High Pages business. You are going to find it super instructive and really valuable. So apologies for the quality of my audio. Won't happen again. Uh, well, let's certainly hope not. And uh, thanks very much for joining us today. G'day everyone and welcome to the Scale Ups Podcast where we help first-time founders learn the secrets of scaling so they can fulfill the potential of their businesses, make bigger decisions with greater confidence and maximise the value and impact that they can create in the world. I am your host, uh, Sean Steele, and I'm joined today, again, actually for a second time, uh, by Robbie Sharon Zipser, CEO of High Pages. Welcome back, Robbie. Thanks for having me, Sean. Mate, uh, you, you may not realise, but actually you are the only person so far that has come back twice. You are the first, uh, second time guest on the podcast. So uh, Fantastic. We're very... <laughs> I'm becoming a star. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Who, who would have thought? <laughs> <laughs> we're pleased to have you back, mate. Very pleased to have you back. And so for those who um, haven't heard Robbie's uh, first episode, I can't remember the episode number off the top of my head, but I'm sure if you look on the website or in your podcast feed, you'll find it pretty easily. It was very early on. And Robbie uh, co-founded um, High Pages Group in 2004, uh, 17 years ago, largest online trading marketplace and SaaS provider, uh, connecting tradies and residential and commercial customers, not only helping them generate business and, and, and leads, but optimizing their business through the SaaS products um, that High Pages has developed. Is that a good summary, Robbie? Very good summary. You did a really good oh, job. Geez, I should be working for High Pages or something. Um, we've, got, we've got openings. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you do. I know you guys are growing fast, and like everybody else, you're probably struggling in the war for talent, right? It's a, uh, we absolutely it's are, a, yes. It's tough out there. Super yeah. hot marketplace, that's for sure. Very, it's, you know, it's been a while, I reckon, since it's been an employee-sided uh, marketplace where people are just, you know, I'm hearing of people with pretty average skill sets asking for some big dollars that they're getting. <laughs> for jobs and I just think, oh, you know, you're in just this perfect little moment of time, this little bubble, it's not going to last forever. So, you know. Yeah, it's an it. interesting time, definitely. Indeed. Yeah. Well, um, today, folks, we are going to take a bit of a left-hand turn. To, there was a couple of things that um, that we talked about uh, with Robbie in the first in the first one, um, in the first episode. One of the things we spent a fair bit of time on was the links between strategy and execution. And so I'm going to invite, uh, invite Robbie back actually for a third time uh, at some point in the future when the time is right for us to really unpack um, some of the tools that are used um, by high pages in really getting that alignment between strategy and execution. But Robbie and I have decided to take a bit of a left-hand turn and talk about capital raising. And why is that? Because, well, for a few reasons, every founder's got to think about it. Uh, every founder spends a lot of time usually thinking about, you know, should I, shouldn't I, can I, can't I, uh, why should I, why shouldn't I, what are my different options, when's the right one for me? 
what are the pitfalls? And so we're going to just freestyle a bit of a conversation today around different types of capital raising because, Robbie, from my understanding, you've done the majority of these um, at different points in your life cycle and you get the bonus of coming from your accounting background, so you probably understand them better than <laughs> some of the others. Um, so maybe uh, maybe we could just start, I know you and I talked about some of the different types and we talked about uh, just very lightly, you know, debt, venture debt, equity, preferred equity, pre-seed, venture capital, strategic investments, um, IPOs. And, uh, you know, for those who haven't done any capital raising, let's assume that, you know, a lot of our audience is in the $2 to $20 million revenue range. They're first-time founders. Many of them have um, bootstrapped and just been reinvesting organic cash flow before and taken on none of this whatsoever, have no investors, have no, you know, may not even have any debt, uh, depending on the style of business um, to suit, you know, to sort of support working capital. But where did, maybe if you could just help us by trying to give us some light descriptions of those so we can understand like what those actually are. So maybe we'll start with yeah. sort of debt and venture debt and then equity we'll talk about. Yeah, ab ab absolutely. Yeah, yeah. I'll, I'll give you some colour on that. Oh, look, I can talk from my experiences. Um, you know, every time I start talking to different people in this space, there's always new and craftier ways of raising money and different forms of structures. But um, there are really... At the end of the day, a few a few forms. Um, I think I would say we would have done the majority of the different types of capital raises that are available to businesses in the last 17, 18 years that we've been in business. Um, when I when I go back in time, in terms of the structures that are available, like you you obviously won't fund it yourself. So you know you. I remember the time, and this is like a bit of storytelling just for the audience yeah. just em em empathize with this, right? Uh, you, you, um, you know, no one really wants to give you any money in the beginning. You might get some money from friends and family. I do remember, and I, I know this is recorded, but those days are done. I remember applying for four credit cards or five credit cards at the exact same time before all the credit checks <laughs> would go out. I think it was a twenty or $40,000 credit. I did the max. Yeah. And uh, we went on credit card, and we were just sort of like trying to pay the credit cards one off at the time. So that's a form of debt, that's, right? Yeah, Funding. Absolutely. Um, and, and a lot of the lot of the audience would have probably, you know, if they've had not had the ability to buy a property, they would have probably created um, some wealth in their property with um, their offset account. And so you probably, as a small business, would have funded your business through um, that offset account and probably shoved some money in there and absolutely. not tell the banks that you're doing that. But yeah. you know, like that's like everyone it's for does it. Right? It's for renovation. That's right. That's, that's kind of kind of like the you know the earliest form of debt. Um, but I think the audience not really wanting to hear what stuff that they've already done. But I just wanted everyone to understand mm. that you know, depending on where you're at your life cycle, we all have had to do those kind of things. Now, what happens? And the funny thing about uh, capital raises, often you finish your first capital raise and you need to start thinking about your next mm, one because sure. um, you've probably already spent the money in your mind at least. Yeah. Um, so that's a that's an interesting thing about capital raise. So. I think as a business, as you start to grow, you need to ask yourself um, some questions like, um, do you want partners? Mm -hmm. um, and uh, you know, if you don't want partners and you're just happy with, your, with where you're at, then probably debt is a really good good way to go. Mm -hmm. um, and you know, you, you may want partners and you might need to dilute and it depends 
depends why you want to dilute and there's a whole range of things that you can um, go down an equity raising path and we can talk about that yeah. and I'm sure the conversation will get to that. Yeah. Um, but on the debt side, there's like there's layers of types of debt that you can take on. Um, you mentioned venture debt, so I'll explain what you mean by venture, what we mean by venture debt. Yeah. And we have had venture debt. Um, and then there's also these ideas of convertible notes, which sort of sit between debt and equity. Mm. Um, and we can explain that a little bit as well. Yeah, great. Um, Actually, so another one of our um, another one of our early uh, guests. Uh, Elise uh, uh, Stoltz Dickerson, she did convertible notes, I remember, uh, when she was trying to do her first uh, her first raise. So, yeah, that'd be great. Maybe let's start on the debt side and, and um, take us through, you know, what are some of the options and how might you think about what might be suitable for you? So, so, so um, in terms of debt, um, obviously, you need to be able to service it. Um, you often hear about people being able to get debt without any covenants. In my experience, um, and, and I have had vast experience with it. There's, that's nonsense to, to get a debt without any covenants. And if anyone starts trying to talk to you about, oh, this company got money and they, they got loans without any covenants. So just for everyone's benefit, a covenant is, is a certain set, set of rules or business metrics that you must maintain, um, an interest serviceable covenant, uh, a minimum cash balance covenant, um, a, a revenue covenant or an EBITDA covenant where your revenue can't go below a certain amount um, and then you breach the covenant, yeah. which in a way is almost like a breach of the, the debt obligations. Yeah. And um, you could run into some trouble with um, the lender um, and they can call on the loan and that needs to be repaid. And you could be in big trouble yeah. if you don't have the cash available to call on the loan. Now, usually in those um, uh, debt type arrangements that you set up with the provider, um, you have some sort of like, um, um, maybe you can break it once or you have a method to resolve it um, or a couple a couple of instances, or you might just get a letter to say you've breached it, it's on file, please don't do it again kind of thing. Mm -hmm. um, so those, those are some things that come with debt. Um, and obviously with debt, there's risk and because- Do you find, you sorry, Robbie, just to interrupt you there, do you find that um, when looking at debt, that they're out of those different kind of covenant types, that there's a, almost a, def a default or a de facto one? Like do they usually, is it typically EBITDA or yeah, typically no, a cash balance model? It, it depends on the business. Uh, in my my experience, usually revenue and EBITDA would be the minimum. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, revenue, EBITDA, uh, interest serviceability sometimes, I haven't seen that as much lately. Um, but revenue, EBITDA, and then a minimum cash balance. Like you can't let your cash balance go below- X dollars. Like, uh, like X dollars, mm -hmm. like if you borrowed if you've got three or four million, you can't let your cash in your reserves go below a million or something mm -hmm. like that. Everyone negotiates that, like it's just a negotiation. Yeah. Um, there's market standards and, you know, you know, it depends on the risk appetite of the lender and competitiveness and um, all of those things. But you, you can negotiate those covenants. Um, uh, it just, just depends on how how much in need you are of that capital and, <laughs> and how also much the interest rate. And I guess how much confidence yeah. you've got in the, your ability to turn it into cash right, and turn it into revenue generation, Co turn it into profit. Co correct. I mean, at the end of the day, someone that's lending you money really wants to remove the risk and they want to redeploy the capital as fast as possible to someone else, you right. know, once you've done your service servicing of that debt. So, mm. um, you know, there's, there's mutual interest in, in that loan approach, lending approach. Um, so yeah, like the things that you be mindful in terms of debt is the covenants and the negotiation on what interest you pay. Mm -hmm. If you're a small business, you typically will go to, you know, one of the main banks to lend you some money. It's hard work. There are business lenders out there that do offer things. Yeah. Um, 
venture debt's an interesting one. So that that, that is actually an, a, a relatively new form of debt. So I can ask just a question, Robbie, back on the bank debt. Um, is there a typical size that you found that they're sort of not interested in having a discussion until the essentially the loan values at a certain amount or the revenue of the business at a certain amount or the EBITDA at a certain amount? So, so the banks lend to all sizes of businesses, whether you're small, medium, or large, and you know they'll do big, big loans to listed companies, to, and, and that's that's common. Um, there, there is. It's hard to say if there's a minimum per se, um, but uh, what you would find is that if you're a small business and you're looking at you know a few hundred thousand dollar loan, maybe up to a million, the bank is typically going to want a security. Um, the main banks definitely do. Um, and the security they'll want is um, your your home, your house. Yeah. That's typically what happens. They'll, there's no there's no real shortcuts to that. That's that's what it is. And if you don't own a home, then you've got to look at other forms of capital raising. Mm. Um, yeah. So that's 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 the thing. When you get bigger, um, does that mean that they would usually take on the home loan as well? Like you'd be transitioning provider. Like, do they just get a hold over that home in some way, or do you actually end up moving the home loan to that provider as well as the business loan? Uh, you, you'd probably have to do a combination, mm. um, bit for the home, bit for the business, yeah. and you'd have to, or, or you'd put a put that as a security. Yeah. Um, yeah. So that so the banks have their own methods of working out. Mm. I, I personally like to keep them separate, but mm. so you know, if you it, it it goes back to that first point I made, where how do you want? Do you want to share ownership of your business? Mm. Then you might want to look at convertible notes and equity type structures. Yeah. Um, um, or if you don't want to put your house as a security, then you're going to have to have um, more stringent covenants, um, personal guarantees. Yeah. Um, you're likely to be asked for personal guarantees regardless. Yeah. Uh, it doesn't make a difference. Everyone's going to want a personal guarantee. Yeah. Um, so those are some things that you know you'll you'll have to consider when you go down the debt route. Mm-hmm. And venture debt. So venture debt's an interesting one. Um, it's been around in the States for a while, definitely in the UK for the last you know, seven or eight years, US maybe 20 years. I think it's relatively new in Australia, like the last four years or so it's been, been in Australia. And when we looked at venture debt and we did take up some venture debt um, with some really good providers, um, that that there were only three or four providers in Australia, two US ones that set up shop here, and two domestic players. Right. But I think there's a lot more of them now, um, and they've sort of got their cadence and how to operate in Australia. Again, there was some covenants, but the difference between venture debt and normal straight debt is that at the end of the repayment cycle, the venture debt provider will take usually like one percent equity in your business. Um, you can structure that to actually pay out that equity in a cash value, so you can use cash to pay it out. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, there's definitely uh, um, mechanisms that you can introduce into venture debt, um, but the venture debt are generally looking, you know, for really big returns, um, somewhere between 15 and 20 percent returns. Right. Um, so, um, because when you add up the interest that they charge on the loan and the value that they get from the one percent mm. um, equity, they, they're looking at around, you know, that 15 to 20 percent return. Um, and you know, that, and that's fine. You know, and it was appropriate. You know, sometimes it's not appropriate to raise equity. Maybe your valuation isn't where you want it to be. Um, you, you don't want to be diluted further. Um, so you take on that type of structure. Um, if, but there's also less security yeah. on that, on a venture debt. And if you're, let's say that you're, you, know, you have no other um, shareholders other than yourself and you take on a venture debt model and they've got, you know, 1%, what, what's the likely way that they can make that liquid? They have to have so a milestone where you have to buy, you have to buy them out over certain periods? Prob- probably, would, you'd probably give them the option to get it 
either they get the option to convert it to cash yeah. or um or, or equity and it would depend on where you're at in that point in time mm -hmm. when the debt is um completely serviced yeah. uh so so that's how you got to give them some flexibility in that yeah, yeah. Or at least that's how i've seen it mm -hmm. being produced mm -hmm. and was that was venture debt something that you took on earlier or that's something more that you did more recently uh we did that about uh three, four years ago, four years ago. Okay. Um, so it was an interesting point in time in our business where, um, you know, our growth had, had um, been sort of plateaued a little bit mm -hmm. and the valuations weren't equal to the previous round. Yeah. So uh, we chose to go down a venture debt route um, and uh, that worked really well for us because subsequent to that, um, we, we, uh, we brought the business to growth uh, it's subsequently listed and the valuation is exponentially higher than mm. where we were at at that point in time. So again, decisions on types of funding depend on where you're at in your business yeah. life cycle. And, you know, as we all know, as people on this podcast will know, it's not always like that. It's mm. it's a bit like that, right? <laughs> it's, a, yeah. it's a little bit of a roller coaster. And, uh, you know, sometimes you need capital and you need to, you can't be too choosy on where you get your capital from. Yeah. Yeah. And then so do you um, convertible notes? Have you used convertible notes? Yeah, we, we have. Um, we've we've taken up in the history of the business three three convertible notes. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, you just explain three. how they work a little bit. Yeah, sure. So convertible notes um, have have a coupon typically. So uh, so you pay an interest. Obviously, there's risk associated with money. Um, convertible notes are a really nice instrument where um, you may not have alignment with your own shareholders or you may not be able to get a clear alignment on valuation. Mm -hmm. um, and so a convertible note is like this instrument that is a form of debt or equity and the option to convert to debt or equity um, at to, like the final repayment or the repayments at the end of it um, are at the, um, are at either the discretion of the note holder mm -hmm. um, or the, or the, or, or like the pro person that provided you yeah. The, the convertible note or the money or also on the person that has the note, like who's taken the debt on. Right. Um, and, you know, with, with convertible notes, you also have a coupon, so you pay interest on it. Um, and, you know, sometimes to preserve cash, you can also structure the convertible note where the interest is accumulative. Okay. So you don't actually have to have an outflow of cash, cash on it. Mm. Yeah. Um, you just might... Um, you might need to pay some of the some of the um, you, you, you just you just sit on it yeah. for a while and that's that's what's really cool about some convertible notes. Mm -hmm. A lot of the convertible notes that I've seen lately though seem to be more around, particularly for the businesses that are at the two to twenty million range, have more of a debt flavor mm -hmm. where um, they either have to, at the option of the person of the entity that's given you the the note, they um, get a discount premium to the valuation. They have the option to convert to equity at that time, so they can dis they can get a discount. Um, to the share price at that point in time yeah. for giving you that note um, and or they can select to convert that note and be fully repaid in cash um, at does, that point in time. What would be a typical, so let's just say you're in a, you've got a $10 million business, you know, you're obviously not listed. Um, how, how, does the, how does the valuation get determined when you get to that end point? So they're looking for a discount to the, to the valuation. Yeah, you're using so, independent so you, value up? Yeah, so you don't, yeah, you can, you can use an independent value, but sometimes you don't actually have to agree on value. What you do, you do is you agree on a discount to the value at that point in time in the future. Right. So you may not agree on valuation when you strike the note, mm -hmm. but what you can say is, okay, well, um, here's a convertible note, here's a loan, here's, in, you pay interest on it. Um, there might be some covenants in that convertible note, but at the end, at the end of that instrument, what you say is I will get a re 
I will get the option to get equity at a 20% discount to whatever the valuation is at that time. Yeah. Now, if the value, the really nice thing for the note holder is if the value has dropped in that time, you have the option to get your money back in cash right. at some sort of extra multiple or premium or something like that. So, and, and, you, and if you've accumulated the interest, you get the interest also paid back. So obviously there's risk yeah. associated with accumulation and maybe people that take mm. convertible notes, the businesses are in different uh, different states. Yeah. Um, so the interest rates can be higher than what you'd expect from say a business loan where it's secured against your home. Yeah. You know, you, you might be paying four, five, 6% on a business loan. Maybe it's a bit higher than that, maybe closer to seven, 8%. Mm-hmm. Um, but then on a, on a convertible note, you, it's not uncommon to see, um, you know, where there's less security, uh, but all the covenants in place, so 10 to 12%, yeah, 12. sometimes a bit higher. Right. Okay. So that, that's not uncommon. I've seen yeah. convertible notes like that as well. Yeah, right. Okay, that's super interesting. And is there a typical, would these typically be, you know, sort of two to three year terms on a convertible note? Yeah, generally, generally it's two to three years. Mm. Um, I don't normally, I haven't, I haven't seen four or five, but yeah. usually the notes that we took on were around um, two to three years, yeah. Yeah, so fundamentally, if you're the person providing the loan, so on the, on the, the, the note, Provider, well, sorry, the um, the person who's providing the cash, um, from their perspective, I've got an opportunity to, to convert to equity at a discount. If the business is going well, if the business isn't going so well, I've got an opportunity to. I will have been accumulating. I will have rather been getting paid interest along the way, um, yep. or I'm accumulating interest and it's going to be paid in some kind of a balloon. So I'm protecting my downside, but I've also got this sort of asynchronous upside. If the business is really you know, streaming ahead, great. I'll convert correct. to equity and keep Correct. Correct. I mean, that's that's really well. Those are the convertible notes that I've seen. There's probably little flavors of different types of things and different types of ways of doing mm. the discounts and um, all of that. But that's generally the flavor of a convertible note. And if it has more of a debt flavor to it, like um, more more of a loans type structure, mm-hmm. then then that's going to be recorded on your balance sheet as a loan. Got it. And it's such an interesting, uh, so as a practical example of this uh, for our audience, when you, if you listen back to Elise Dolts Dickerson, who um, built the biotech firm Eosera, she had secured a gigantic um, order from a massive um, big box retailer in the States. And all of a sudden she, she had no, she had no production facility yet. She had a manufacturing lined up. She all of a sudden had to produce, I think it was like 40,000 units or 90,000 units or something like that. And she just didn't have, didn't have the cash. So she raised uh, convertible notes with, with private investors. Uh, all of whom converted to equity um, at the end of that period because the business was going really well, but she just couldn't, you know, she didn't have the cash flow to uh, to support that kind of product build. Yeah, I mean, we, we had a very similar situation because we took some convertible notes a few years ago. Um, we we started to see nice, really good green shoots. We were coming out of a more of a flat cycle and really started to see growth in the business. And to this day, we're still continuing to see that growth. And um, we made some changes in our business business model and and um, you know we didn't really want to take on or dilute further on equity we, we, we went we weren't clear on valuation so at that point in time we did take on um, convertible notes I actually went to the network that I've accumulated over the years structured an instrument um, and did the raising myself mm-hmm. um, with, with with my with my CFO we went out we presented the terms were acceptable the board approved that yeah. the money came in um, and then from that event, we were able to successfully IPO high pages on the ASX in November um, of la- you know last year. Right. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. No, not not November. November of 2020. 2020. I just get the years. I know. It's, it's <laughs> the years have just so blended like, into one. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's just all blended. No, sorry, 20 November 2020. So it's been been over a year now. Yeah. So um, I actually you know, feel like so it's that, the first that, point in time where the years have actually just melded together. I keep saying last year, and then thinking, actually, hang on a second, that is 2020. Like they're just sort of all coagulating at the moment. <laughs> 
I, I keep doing that. I, I uh, so it's a bit of a COVID cloud. Yeah. I think you know we just everything's just blended and That's melded right. into one, like you're saying. Yeah. That's right. Yeah. So are those any other debt instruments or sort of debt oriented instruments that you think we should explore, or should we shift to equity? I think I think you know like those are the types of debt structures. Mm. They're not they're not overly complex. I mean, you can go invest invest OPR or whatever and mm. Google that, and you can mm. read in more detail mm. of all the different flavors. Mm. But typically in Australia, the ones that I've described is what's available to the business community. Yeah. Um, then there's the whole other conversation on equity and raising money via equity. So one which I presume one question before we do that, Robbie. Um, if I'm a small business owner, I've never you know this is the first time I've even heard of a convertible note. Uh, other than my own research, who would you who would you recommend a business go to? Like, where would be their starting point for advice around it? Like, how do they? Is it a lawyer who specialises in this um, area, or there's financiers that specialise in convertible notes? Who would they typically go after? I mean, you've got a CFO and you've obviously got a really strong background uh, yourself. Yeah. Where would they go? Yeah. So, like, um, in terms of a convertible note, like, obviously, we did that ourselves. Mm. Um, so we we. Um, we didn't like there's like VC funds and things like that that do convertible notes. Mm -hmm. um, so there's there, you probably just have to do a bit of research, mm -hmm. ask around in terms of the financial community. I mean, if anyone wants to shoot me an email, see if I can introduce them to one or two people that can help them. I certainly have um, people that I, I can connect people to on that. So I'm happy to connect with me on LinkedIn and send me a question. I'm pretty responsive there. So I'll, I'll be happy to help out and make some intros in definitely in the Sydney market. Yeah. Um, I, I know quite a few people, but uh, it's not too hard to find and set these things up. Just need a little bit of help or advice. Yeah. There's lots of bankers and things that can do that for you, yeah. definitely. Okay, that's awesome. Thanks, Robbie. And so if we shift to equity, and maybe if we think about this almost from a journey perspective, you know, when you're super early stage and you're just struggling for capital and you can see the vision of your business and you've got some great, you've got a few customers maybe and a little bit of revenue coming in, you're like, you know, but you're open to the fact that actually, I don't know what I don't know, and maybe I see some real value in bringing somebody with some additional expertise in addition to um, to capital, and I'm open to offer, you know, offering up some equity to do so. How might they think about that sort of super early stage when we start there? Yeah, so, so our story is an interesting one because like we, you know, we've taken all the flavors of different capital raises along the way, but we did actually start with an equity raise. Mm -hmm. um, so that our first form, like, well, besides the credit card story that I opened mm -hmm. with and the... <laughs> the loans from my personal account, like we really quickly moved into equity raises. Um, you know, and our, our preference has been to be just ordinary equity. Mm -hmm. um, so for the audience, uh, just to, to clarify, there's different types of ways of raising equity um, and ordinary shares, just standard, everyone treated equally, all shareholders' shares are, worth, are, are the same, mm -hmm. but there's this thing called preferred equity. Um, and there are different funds from, you know, VC and private equity, particularly from the US that will come to Australia with different preferences on the equity. So the shares are not equal to ordinary equity. So they first money, their first, the first, they get their first money out, they get some uh, extra preferences on their shares, extra multiples, extra multiples, you know, that's the type of um, that's a concept of preferred equity and yeah. you know and you can get some really nice valuations but it's hard to work out your true valuation mm -hmm. when you start getting ordinary and preferred equity mix we, we were fortunate enough that we were we didn't actually take on preferred preference shares mm -hmm. or provide equity through preference shares yeah. uh, we did all all of our raises through ordinary equity raises okay. um yeah so 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 then when you go and raise equity, who do you raise money from, I think is the next question. And there's different ways to do it. Um, so sort of preempting your questions there, Sean, Thank sorry. You. No, it's <laughs> totally doing my job for me, it's great. <laughs> yeah. 
Um, so like, yeah, like, I mean, what's interesting that wasn't available to us though, and it might be worth looking into, I'm not a massive expert on this, but it's worth taking a look at some of the crowd crowdfunding, mm -hmm. um, particularly uh, for the smaller stage businesses where I think between two and $10 million, the uh, regulations have really changed. Yeah. It's easier to get crowdfunding nowadays. Mm -hmm. um, and, and there's like platforms that do crowdfunding really well uh, domestically and internationally. Um, and the rules, like I said, have changed. So yeah. um, some of the, some of the, the issues with wholesale and going to high net wealths and all that sort of all those rules and signatures that they've made them a little bit easier so to make happen. Crazy. Yeah. So actually if, if there's anyone in the audience listening and you have raised uh, money through crowdfunding um, on your, and you're still in that sort of two to 20, two to 20 million scale journey, we'd love to hear from you. It might be you know, a good opportunity for us to have a conversation. So that's something that we can unpack in the future. Okay. So we've got kind of crowdfunding as, as one option. Yeah. And then uh, the other, so the straight ordinary equity is you effectively, you, you, you probably appoint an advisor, mm -hmm. um, usually a banker, there's plenty of them out there. Mm -hmm. um, and, uh, you know, just do your checks and make sure um, that, uh, you know, they've checked their credentials, that they know what they're talking about. Mm -hmm. They do quite a lot of the negotiations, the, the heavy lifting, the intros, they have the right network. Mm -hmm. um, there's plenty of really good ones out there. We've worked with a number of very strong um uh, I guess they call them advisors or, or advisors for, for banking. Mm -hmm. um, so these guys these guys um, do a really good job. They help you with your pitch deck. So you obviously need a pitch deck. Um, this the whole other conversation on how to put a pitch deck together. Not yeah. for today. <laughs> not for today. Um, there's probably, it's a 10, 12 page document. Mm -hmm. You create an information memorandum. And I think you also need to be ready for due diligence, right? Yeah. So there's a whole other conversation on due diligence and talk through that yeah. probably maybe if we want to later, but mm. we, we can explain that. So you've got to be ready because you've got to stand up and present and tell your story um, to people that will ask you hard questions. Yeah. They're not stupid. They're smart people. Mm. They've seen pitches and many pitches before. Um, they know what to ask. They know um, how to get to the fundamentals of your business. Mm -hmm. um, you need to have financial literacy yeah. um, and your advisors will help you with that. Um, and you need to be ready for the questions. Um, Actually, just as and, a resource for people uh, in the audience, if you haven't, if you're in the process of thinking about um, you know, raising and you're looking for some uh, assistance on building a pitch deck, uh, Y Combinator. Uh, so if you just Google Y Combinator pitch decks, they have some really excellent resources. Good templates. Uh, good templates Absolutely. Yeah. So the audience is actually really lucky because we've really matured in Australia over the last, I'd say, five years on how to do these things. Mm -hmm. Whereas, you know, when we did our raises, you know, 12, 14 years, 14 years ago, there's absolutely nothing out there. Like it was, a, it was sort of like we were just sort of winging it and trying yeah. to work it out. Um, but so today it's really polished. Um, it's really like, you know, people know how to tell the stories, how to get the, the pitch decks right. Um, I think the thing that people though do underestimate is the due diligence process. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, we've, we've made some uh, investments just recently ourselves um, for, for um, one of our businesses. It's called, um, we invested in a business called Bricks and Agent. We also made an acquisition um, in New Zealand recently. And I think the thing that founders are genuinely shocked, and I, I know that there's been a bit of, um, a lot of phone conversations, couch sessions, just explaining the process of um, the due diligence. And that is a comprehensive process and you need to be ready for that. Um, you, you are pretty much going to be asked to provide nearly every document that you've captured over the years. And really, if you are not really that good on, the, on your paperwork, um, your leases, your 
principal contracts, your contracts with your customers, yeah, um, yeah. you know, all, all employment contracts, um, your certificates of incorporation, your tax returns, yeah. your accounts, yeah. management accounts, you name it, like the list, IP, trademarks, domain names, the, the list is extensive, legal due diligence, um, the, you know, there's just your business model, um, all of that needs to be loaded into a data room and that will be interrogated and you will, so the, the um, people that invest in businesses, they're really clever. They'll give you maybe 10 questions and a list of things that they need and you put it all together and you do it like in a week or two, like it takes a bit of time to put it together and you're probably working till midnight getting it together. And then they'll send you another equally large list the next week to yeah. add more to and then a week later an equally large list with more questions that's and right. eventually it does slow down so i think that's probably the thing that the audience may not be aware of mm. is how how much work is involved in that due diligence process yeah. um that's that's something that was a shock to me the first time but after the eighth or tenth time it just it's like it just becomes business as usual absolutely and as a you know as a ceo in the last uh five years i probably looked at you know over 200 deals and we went into deep due diligence on at least uh, probably nine ten eleven like you know full full processes and that you know, and we had you know six or seven people working on this you know from all from different angles okay you guys have got sales and marketing and you guys you guys are building the finance you're rebuilding the financial model and you guys are doing all the tax and legal and dd yeah and it's uh it is a huge process and it is um it, it is it becomes a big part of your life and that and the challenge of course when you're small well on one hand you don't have a lot of information but two there's going to be an expectation to to find it and to to come up with it um because people are essentially putting their money at risk right so they want to know how correct, where their correct. Risks are. And, it, and it's even harder because usually at that scale you've got a job to do That's you've right. got to show up every day you probably have a team you've got to be smiley you've got to motivate you've got to continue delivering um and you know you're probably doing stuff mm-hmm. when you come into work every day and then when you wrap job. up your day you've got to do the due diligence work so yeah. um that's what i think i think um founders in my experience and i appreciate i in my own found it very very challenging and, and it yeah. was a lot of work yeah 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 i agree um yeah it's a big and you know the the sometimes depending on how well it's done, uh, there's a real risk of taking your eye off the ball in the main game of the business if you're not resourced and to actually happens. deal with it. Yeah. Absolutely happens. And yeah, it's the worst time for it to happen because what the last, last thing that anyone's going to give you money when they do an equity raise is, so tell me how was last month's results? <laughs> and and if the numbers aren't where they're supposed to be based on the forecast, the deal could just fall over and yeah. all of that work can go that away. Is, now, yeah. look, I mean, that's a bit doomsday and Mr. Negative, right? But like, it, 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 you've is, got to be mindful of all of those things. That is actually such a great point. And yes, if I think about some of the DD processes that I've run, we might have that might have actually gone over the course of, say, four months. So, you know, the team on the other side, they work super hard, they're getting all this together, the numbers are starting to wobble. And every month, whilst we're doing our DD, we're getting updates on the numbers every month, as you said, and actually, Month two started to tail off. Month three started to look a bit worse. And so all of a sudden, you know, we're in the process of assessing our risk on our side, right? And so we're going, actually, maybe yeah. this isn't as, it's, maybe it's not as stable as we thought it was. So they're like, well, I'm spending all my time doing your due diligence. Yeah. Yeah. So, 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 so there's, there's three things that can pan out, right? The deal goes ahead because they take the risk. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, they walk away, which is terrible. Mm-hmm. And then all that effort's wasted. 
and you might run into a cash issue, which is not good. Yeah. Um, and this, and the third thing is, is they come back and renegotiate terms. Yeah, that's right. Um, Price goes that, yeah. that, yep, and that happens. Mm-hmm. It's happened. So I've seen it. Yeah. Um, and I'm smiling because, like, we went through it. I think, I think the, I think the comfort, maybe that just so it doesn't sound so doom, yeah. doomsy and mm-hmm. not a bad option, mm-hmm. is that. You can only do what you can do. You're a human being. You do the best you can. You yeah. come in every day. You work through. You put the material in the data room. Yeah. You keep stay focused. Um, be happy. Be motivated. Be energized. Mm-hmm. Um, think about the way I've the way I've my own my own motivational technique has been. Um, how will I feel in a week's time? How will I feel mm-hmm. at the end of the month? How will I feel in a year's time? Mm-hmm. And probably in a year's time, you wouldn't have even thought about yeah. what what just what you're experiencing now you would have gotten through it yeah. so it's just it's just getting up getting into the routine delivering what you said you're going to do um and it's do the best you can yeah. that's all you can do and don't forget that you know as you're building that documentation if it's the first time around for the next if that deal doesn't come off and you end up with a different investor you've actually got you know now you've got 85 absolutely what you need and you're just updating 15 percent, which is awesome so it does the first time around it's a bit harder for sure Absolutely, it's a, you get to recycle that, and if you if you have a process of just maintaining that, like you know, just put it down as a task to update. A few, you know, on material contracts, okay, let's just update it into this into this specific folder. Yeah. Actually, actually, like maybe a good little tip is maybe you're a bit away from doing these raises, but maybe you want to go and get mm. what is the typical data structure yeah. of a due diligence folder, and have your have your folders, whether you use Google Drive yeah. or, you know, whatever it is, you know, Microsoft's, you know, products to just start setting up your folders yeah. so that when you start filing and doing those contracts, you just pop them in there. And actually, when you do have to get the due diligence folder ready, it's literally just grab and paste it into the into the data room. Absolutely. Really makes it easier. And I think I wish someone had told me that earlier. I mean, I was pretty organized, to be fair, mm. being an accountant. But yeah. like, you know, if you're not don't have that natural skill set, you don't know maybe you that's don't a good know. way to start thinking about well, it. Well, actually, yeah. in the audience, if you'd like to send us an email at questions at scaleupspodcast.com, that's questions at scaleupspodcast.com, uh, just send me an email and I'll, I'll shoot you an example DD list because I do a lot of this kind of work um, and I support other clients buying other businesses, so I'm in DD you know, quite regularly. Um, I can send you an example list of the kind of stuff that we might ask as a typical list to start with, so it'll just tell you as exactly Robin said, what's the structure, what's the folders, what's, what are we going to expect over time? This allows you to start building it now, even if you don't think you might raise capital for another year, well, we'll get, get your skates on. So conscious how much time we've got left, we'll, uh, we'll move on from that. But then so we, we're, we're, we're talking about kind of equity um, options. You said, you know, most of the time you, you sort of raised pretty straight, ordinary um, equity. And so this is yep. uh, typically uh, equity holders that you expect to hold that percentage of shares forever. No, you wouldn't necessarily hold it forever. Uh, so, you know, everyone wants a return. I mm. think uh, depending on your life cycle, I think people looking at five years probably mm-hmm. is a reasonable time. They want to know what their exit strategy is. So if the company is going to be held private forever, then um, then uh, you're not you're not going to really want to invest. Like that's just like, how do I get my money out? Mm-hmm. Like you're sort of stuck when you go in there. So typically in the um, IM material and the narrative that the founder has to follow, like it, it, and you will get pressure. And typically when the equity is raised, you will get a director appointed, like a shareholder representative director, mm-hmm. if not one, maybe two, mm-hmm. and there will be an exit plan needed. And the exit plan is uh, typically whether it's going to be a trade sale or an IPO. Yeah. So a trade sale is, uh, is when uh, you actually have another business buy you out. Um, that's that's typically a, tra- a trade sale. 
And then an IPO is obviously listed on a, a, a relevant exchange, whether it's the ASX, if this is an Australian podcast or the NASDAQ, mm-hmm. it just depends. But, you know, in our case, um, we always had that as a potential option. Um, we decided to go down the um, listing route and uh, the shareholders that came in um, have done extremely well. Um, most of them have done 10 to 20x of their money when wow. they, some of the original, original Ooh. shareholders that came in at a really low valuation um, are at 30, 40x of their money, wow. right? So um, so they're the, the definitely, it's worthwhile. It's definitely the risk, but there is also a high failure rate with these, with these type of businesses. Ooh. So, you know, but the, but the people that usually come in are, are people that um, are sophisticated investors. Ooh. And you can look up what a sophisticated investor is. You, you either earn a certain amount of income or you have a certain amount of net assets so that can wear the risk mm-hmm. um but uh yeah so that that's generally stuff to think about mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um what made you so we think about that actually you know one of the one of the things you mentioned was a strategic investor how would you separate a sort of typical investor from a strategic one yeah so so we also have had a strategic investor come into high pages so in our space it was just hard to get um, awareness levels to where we we wanted them to be um news uh, uh so at the time news corp um so everyone will know who they are very one of the largest well the largest media company in australia and um, they they invested in high pages um, back in 2015. There was a strategic reason behind it. Uh, obviously, there was some decline in their trade advertise, trade classified advertising. Um, we offered a very differentiated product uh, to the Googles and the Facebooks of the world, and it was the evolution of where classifieds are going, which was a request to quote service. Um, so they invested heavily in us and. Um, we wanted to lift our awareness levels up. And so we we worked very closely with news and we moved from low single digit awareness to mid twenties and then subsequently um, supported us through other marketing to get our awareness levels up to, you know, close to the 60% range now. Wow. So, you know, six out of 10 people in Australia would have heard of the High Pages brand. Yeah. Certainly if you're a homeowner, you would have, mm. you'd have come across us. Mm. So, yeah, like, uh, you know, that's what a strategy can do for you, mm. right? Make you from un- unknown, not really, aware of what you do yeah. to becoming known. Right. Um, and so news news served served that well and still uh, still to this day, um, you know, maintain their position and they own 25% of the business yeah. and work well with each other and the connections that we have through through news and the way we are as maybe a cousin mm-hmm. in that in that empire yeah. um, has been really good for us. Um, it might not be good for everyone, mm-hmm. uh, but for us, that worked out really well. Yeah, well, typically, you know, I think you know, if we one of the things that might be common as a characteristic of a, a strategic investor is that they have an asset that they're willing to leverage that they can see through part through an investment in your business. They can bring something to the table that's valuable for you, but it's also going to be valuable for them because the value of their investment's going to go up. So everybody wins in that scenario. You get to grow leveraging their assets. They, you know, their investment grows, and you and and, and everybody wins uh, in that scenario. So I think strategics can be really. Yeah, oh, we do that a lot in, in education. Somebody might be trying to shift from a B two C model to a B two B model, and they take on a strategic partner who actually has a significant number of employers um, that they can immediately introduce your education business to, and all of a sudden, you know, your business can can double or triple uh, pretty fast. 
Exactly, and then and in our case, we we um, announced to the market uh, late last year, invested in a business called Bricks and Agent, um, which is an area that we just didn't have presence in. We we as high pages work really well with homeowners, but we don't really work in the property management side of things, mm -hmm. nor commercial property management. So the maintenance and repairs of rental properties and commercial property, and so Bricks and Agent um, has really nailed the technology. And so we took a strategic position in that business and took a twenty five percent stake mm -hmm. um, in their in their company um, and appointed a director, a CFO as a director on that business. And um, that helps us get presence in, in an area that uh, we, we really felt we needed a presence yeah, in um, sure. and working with the best best in the market. So strategics can be helpful. And we have um, like a joint venture agreement with each other where we are helping each other's businesses out mm -hmm. um, and, and our customers out. So there's definitely uh, win-wins to be made in in having a strategic investor. I think one one question that often gets asked, so I was thinking, well, can't I just set up a part? Like, can't I just set up a partnership with someone or a relationship? You know, maybe I can refer to them and they'll refer to me. That's all fine, and they and those, of course, can work. Um, but my question is always, how how much longevity has it got? How sustainable has it got? When you've both, when you've got money yeah. invested in each other, people want to work together because actually everyone's got a reason. There's a that, strong. That's absolutely. <laughs> That's absolutely my philosophy. Um, look, you, you know, if it's too risky and you're not sure, the partnerships are fine. Yeah. Like, and people do partnerships all the time, and you know, a lot of partnerships don't don't pan out. Mm. Um, in this instance, like you know, when you've done your due diligence, you've looked at the market. There aren't really any other players. This is the best fit. Money on the on the line um, really makes people come to the party mm. um, and, and 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 deliver. Yeah. Um, but then the other thing that I think about as well is that you know if you have a partnership you're helping someone else build up their business but you don't have any of the upside of some of the ip that you may have given them yeah and that's something that i i think a lot about and sort of kind of really like those strategic investments mm. or at least have a have, have a piece of the piece of the prize yeah. at the end of the day that you've helped help build robbie i know we are uh, almost at time and i want to respect um respect our clock today uh respect your time Anything else that you think when you take a step back, anything else that you wish somebody had told you about capital raising on your way up that might have made your life a little bit easier, uh, whether it was a resource or somebody to speak to or someone you had to get in your corner or how, what, what would you leave people with? It's probably a couple things. I think uh, just be careful with um, who you take your money from. Um, I've, I've um, heard some pretty shocking stories where uh, some of the people that you've brought money in have been like really hard to work with um, and just hold, hold out to the last minute and try and get benefits for them. And you really need to do your due diligence on who's bringing the money into your business because mm -hmm. it's your business at the end of the day. So that's really, really important. Um, I think that's probably the most strategic thing I could give mm -hmm. at the end, mm -hmm. of, end of this meeting is be careful with who you, who you take your money from yeah. and make sure that they are people that you want to work with. They will let you run the business and not get hands-on. So I've heard some really horror stories in that side yeah. of it. And I think probably the little tactical thing, maybe an operational thing that, um, you know, like we were good with our models, but it was too complex. Mm -hmm. Um, I think I think for founders, your business model, your forecasting, I'm talking about your actual forecasting and your projections and your assumptions really should all be in one one workbook, one spreadsheet. At the end of the day, that's what people are going to really, really uh, look at. They're going to analyze your assumptions. And if it's too complicated, you can't even transfer the files or you don't really know how those numbers work. Um, you're going to you're not going to be you're not going to have a successful yeah. um, capital raise, whether it's debt. Or equity, no one's going to no one's going to believe your business. Everyone looks at the numbers at the end of the day. So that's probably more of a tactical thing. 
um, compared to the first point on being more strategic on who you who you bring into your business. Fantastic. And actually, you know, I just think about uh, an interview we did recently with John Katzman that's just been recently published who built three companies, uh, 200 million rev uh, or beyond, um, beyond that. One of the things he also said is, notwithstanding, you've got to be careful who you get into bed with, and I couldn't agree more. The other, the upside when sometimes people are a bit scared about that is actually if you get the right people, they can really help you improve your business because they ask you hard questions, because they really challenge your thinking, because they're asking you stuff that no one else is going to ask you, and it actually improves the way that you think about your business and your category and you know who the business is going to be, and so that can also be um, super valuable if you got and, the right. And that, and that's and that's great. That's strategic. That's fine. It's just sometimes you don't want the partners that get in and start telling you how to hire and fire people 100%. and how to, yeah. how, how to, how to do all the little bits and pieces. You just really want them out of that. What exactly what you said, Sean, is what you'd want from a business partner that is investing yeah. in you. Yeah. Beautiful. Well, Robbie, thank you so much. Uh, people, as, as Robbie's already mentioned, you can find him on LinkedIn. Feel free to shoot him a note and say thanks if you, if you enjoyed uh, what he's had to say. Of course, we always value if you leave uh, reviews on, on the podcast. You can follow us on LinkedIn. You will you can uh, join us on YouTube and you can watch the full video version. Uh, but I hope you enjoyed the show. And uh, just remember that the only thing that you can guarantee is going to stop you from scaling up is actually giving up. So you've got to stay in the game. You've got to keep tacking and changing and you've got to stay flexible, but you've got to stay committed to that vision that you've got for your business. So uh, good luck, everyone, and we'll speak to you again next week. Thanks so much, Robbie. Thanks, Sean. Thank you, mate. G'day everyone, just a couple of quick things before you go. If you have questions that you'd love myself or an upcoming guest to tackle about challenges that you're facing in scaling your business, please just jump straight on the website, scaleupspodcast.com. You can record your message straight from your mobile by hitting the button on the right-hand side of the page, or you can just email them the old-fashioned way, questions at scaleupspodcast.com. And just a quick reminder, nothing we spoke about today constitutes financial or business advice. If you are considering making big decisions in your business, seek out a professional who can look at your situation in detail and make sure you're getting sound, personalized advice. Thanks for listening. Look forward to being back in your podcast feed next week.